All right, let's begin. What is the most memorable meal that you have ever enjoyed? Now, usually memorable meals revolve around special occasions, so weddings, birthdays, Christmases, etc. For me, it was probably our wedding reception meal 20 years ago this week on the 18th of June 2000. It was the hottest day of the year, uh, and we uh, celebrated our wedding, Claire and I, with all of our friends and family with a posh barbecue, uh, chicken, sausages, etc. Then there was strawberries and cream afterwards. It was all washed down by pitchers of sangria, and it was a fantastic day and a very memorable meal for more reasons than one. Now, few of us probably answered that question, what's your most memorable meal, uh, with the suggestion of a humble fish finger sandwich. Here's one I made earlier. I don't know whether you can see that. There we go. Fish finger sandwich. Very humble, probably for most of us, more comfort food than a memorable meal. <clears throat> but today we're going to turn to event to an event in the New Testament that aside from the resurrection is the only miracle that is recorded in all four New Testament Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John all reference this event. So obviously it's highly significant, deserving of special attention. And this event involves a humble fish finger sandwich. Uh, and it's both a memorable event and it's comfort food for our souls. So if you would, please read along with me from Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 21. And this is what God's word says. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed the sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we've only got five loaves here and two fish. And then he said to them, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this morning and another opportunity to dive into your word together. We pray you'd speak now by your Holy Spirit and encourage us through this memorable meal that it would be comfort food for our souls today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Amen. Well, the feeding of the 5,000 is a familiar story to probably all Christians, especially the children, because it's included in every children's Bible. Uh, and it's easy enough to understand what is happening. But each gospel writer tackles it from a different angle because they're trying to emphasize different points to fit their purpose and reason for writing. So the question we need to ask is, well, what's Matthew's take on the situation? Well, in Matthew 13, he has relayed eight parables that describe what the kingdom of heaven is like. And then in Matthew 14, he we get a glimpse into what the king 
of the kingdom of heaven is like. And so the goal of Matthew 14 is to set before us Jesus, the king, uh, so that we might more deeply uh, see him and as a result, grow in our trust of him and our worship of him. Because it's important that we realize that what we believe about Jesus will ultimately determine how we trust him and how we worship him. And so Matthew wants to point out three things through this encounter. He wants us to see that Jesus is compassionate, that Jesus is in control and that Jesus is enough. So let's dive right into those three things. And the first one is this, that Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is compassionate. Now, the chapter begins in verses one and two with a report that Herod, uh, and that's not Herod the Great who was king when Jesus was born, but this is one of his sons because that Herod had passed on and passed away. Uh, he, this Herod, has had Jesus, uh, sorry, John the Baptist beheaded in prison. And then verses three to 12 are this kind of flashback to that event so we can see what happened. And this is really the first significant sign in the Gospel of Matthew that there is growing opposition first to John and then to Jesus. And we get to verse 13 and Jesus hears of this report of John's execution at the hands of Herod. And he decides to withdraw from Galilee to perhaps distance himself from whatever danger he perceives Herod might be to him at that time. But I think he's also seeking some peace and quiet with his disciple friends because of the swarming crowd that has been pressing upon him for day after day after day. And it's a little bit of a, an, an opportunity for a little bit of downtime with his disciples. So they jump in a boat and they head east across the Sea of Galilee to the far side of the lake to a much more rural and less populated area, a, a desolate place, a remote place, as the disciples draw our attention to. But the crowd somehow mysteriously get wind of this and what Jesus is planning and they decide to follow him. So they set out on foot to uh, probably what is going to be the most likely landing place and they wait for him. And then in verse 14, as Jesus and the boat carrying the disciples finally comes ashore, they're met by a big expectant crowd eager to be with Jesus. Now, in verse 21, Matthew tells us that the crowd is about 5000 men plus women plus children. Now, biblical scholars over the years have kind of done the maths and they've tried to work out how many people this might be. And the best estimate is that probably the crowd numbers somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people. Now, let me try and put that into a little bit of context with you with some more show and tell after the fish finger sandwich. I hope this is going to work because we don't really have the technology. I'm going to show you a picture on my phone. Uh, so I'm going to hopefully see, see if you can see this, right? This is a picture of, let me get that, 50 people in a room. Okay, so that's what 50 people looks like. Okay, this is a picture of what 150 people look like. Sorry about the focus. Okay, so this is a church of 250 people. This is a group gathering of 500 people. So it's getting bigger and bigger all the time. That's a mass gathering there. Okay, this is a picture of 3,000 people. Okay, so that gives you an idea, 3,000 people. So that isn't even the size of the group of men that Matthew records. Okay, this is, this is um, a test stadium in New York that holds 20,000 people. So that's what 20,000 people looks like. Okay, or if you want a picture of what it would look like outside, this is 20,000 people gathered recently for a political rally in the United States. Okay, so that is the size of the crowd that meets Jesus 
when he gets off the boat. So put that in context, okay? That is the size of the crowd. Can you imagine that? That's all the people waiting for Jesus, 20,000 people. And the most surprising thing, rather than the size of the crowd, is actually Jesus's reaction to the crowd. <clears throat> now, if it was me looking for a bit of R&R with my friends uh, and I get off a boat and I see 20,000 people, my first instinct in response would be to grumble and to complain. Uh, anger and frustration with a healthy side of perhaps resentment and bitterness, you know. So perhaps you've even said this just to your kids, your small family. Oh, for goodness sake, just give me five minutes of peace, will you? For five minutes. But Jesus responds differently to how you and I would respond, which is good news, isn't it? And what we see here is that what we heard him claim with his words, which we saw last week in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, that will give you rest. Jesus now proves by his actions in Matthew 14. And what we see is the compassion of Jesus. Now, again, I'm very grateful to Dane Ortland from his book, Gentle and Lowly, for just helping me think this through more clearly. But time and time again throughout Matthew, we see that Jesus acts with compassion. If you were to flip back a few pages to Matthew chapter eight, verses two and three, uh, when a leper comes to Jesus and says to him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus responds by stretching out his hand to the leper and touching him and says, I will be clean. It's an act of compassion. Matthew chapter nine, verse two, when a group of men bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus, he doesn't even wait for them to vocalize their requests. He sees their faith and he immediately acts to heal the man and to forgive him of his sins. It's an act of compassion. Then in Matthew chapter nine, verses 35 uh, to the end of the chapter, when Jesus is traveling about from town to town and he's being followed by these gigantic crowds, he has compassion on them, Matthew tells us, for they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. He had great compassion upon the crowds. And so when we get to Matthew 14 and we have 20,000 people waiting for Jesus and they've come far from home and they've endured the heat of the day in the Middle Eastern sun and uh, <clears throat> they're sat there waiting for him, waves of compassion flow from his heart, driving him to heal all the sick that were among that huge crowd. Compassion, the Greek word for compassion, for compassion literally refers to, refers to our bowels or our guts. And it means it's a word that describes being moved so deeply that you feel it in the pit of your stomach. That's what compassion is. And the cumulative testimony of the New Testament gospels is that when Jesus sees the fallenness and the brokenness of the world around him, his deepest impulse is to move towards the saint, uh, the sufferer and the struggler and the sinner, not away from them. Whether it be lepers or prostitutes, tax collectors, the demon possessed, the sick and the infirm, the outcast and the unclean, whether it be crowds of undeserving sinners and sufferers and strugglers, his first impulse is to move towards them. His heart is full of compassion for them. His heart of compassion is triggered so that he embraces, he touches, he forgives, he loves. And the sick are healed and the unclean are cleansed and the outcast are welcomed and the sinner is forgiven. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says this. It's on your notes if you printed them out. 
The Jesus given to us in the Gospels is not simply one who loves, but one who is love. Merciful affections stream forth from his innermost heart as rays from the sun. And he says this, it is impossible for the affectionate heart of Christ to be over celebrated or to be made too much of or exaggerated. It cannot be plumbed. But unfortunately, the heart of Christ and his compassion towards sinners and sufferers can easily be neglected or forgotten because I do it. And I think you probably do, too. And so I want to say to us all this morning that the Jesus that we read about here in Matthew's gospel is the same Jesus today. He has not changed. The same Jesus who reached out and touched lepers reaches out to put his loving and comforting arms around you and me this morning when we feel isolated or alone or misunderstood or sidelined. The same Jesus who reached out and cleansed messy sinners reaches down into the messiness of our hearts and into the messiness of our lives to cleanse us and forgive us with his unquenchable and his invincible cleansing power of grace. This Jesus that we read in Matthew's gospel is is not far off despite his presence now in heaven. In fact, he's closer to you and me today than he was to the crowd of 20,000 people that were on that shoreline that day. For he dwells with us by his Holy Spirit. So when you picture Jesus in your mind, what's the thing that stands out most strongly to you? Is it that he's the fulfillment of all the hopes and longings of the Old Testament? Is it His holiness that causes even his closest friends to fall down before him in fear, aware of their own sinfulness. Is it that he's a mighty teacher whose understanding and authority dwarfed the religious gurus and the PhDs of his day? True. All of those things. They're absolutely right and true. And yet the dominant note that Matthew wants us to see here is that Jesus is full of compassion. Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan uh, from the 17th century, once wrote this, that Christ is love covered over in flesh. And the good news this morning is that Jesus's heart of compassion towards sufferers and sinners like you and me is not drained as we come to him. In fact, his heart is filled with joy and his glory is increased as we come to him and as we find mercy and grace from him to help us in time of need. That's why he issues that invitation that we heard last week. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His heart is not drained. His heart is enlarged with joy and his glory is increased as we come to him. So come to him this morning, for he is a Christ of compassion for you. Now, secondly, the thing that we see in this story is not only that Jesus is compassionate, but that Jesus is in control. In verses 15 to 19, we read the story that as the day wore on, uh, it becomes clearer that the crowd would need something to eat. And when it didn't look like either Jesus or the crowd would be wrapping things up anytime soon, the disciples decide that they need to step in and take charge of the situation. 
And so they come to Jesus and they advise him that he needs to send needy people away from him so that they can go and find food in the little hamlets that uh, were in this remote, less densely populated area. Now, on the surface of things, that seems like a wise and practical bit of thinking until you think 20,000 people, let's go to the local corner shop to buy a sandwich. Now, that wouldn't obviously work but something even greater is at stake here because it seems like in a in a kind of irony that passes the disciples by that they are telling Jesus to send needy people away from him having heard his invitation to let needy people come to him and then having seen his great compassion for the crowd as he stepped off the boat the disciples think that the best thing to do is to send the needy away from him but Jesus has a better idea. And so in verse 16, he says to them, will you give them something to eat? Now, at this point, having heard all that they've heard and having seen all that they have seen, the disciples should have uh, gone to Jesus and said, come on, Jesus, you're going to have to do something for all of these people. You're a God of compassion. Please work on their behalf. But instead, they respond by coming to Jesus and pointing out their own very meager, inadequate resources and their complete insufficiency for the task. So they say, Jesus, this is a hopeless situation. This is a situation that's beyond our control. We're in the middle of nowhere. There's a football match sized crowd here. And all we've got is five loaves and two fish, uh, a fish finger sandwich, if you like, a fish finger sandwich that we borrowed from a little boy in the crowd. We can't do it. But isn't that exactly the point that Jesus is trying to make? See, Jesus in verse 16 is calling them to do something that they could not do in their own power. And they could not do it with their own very limited resources. You see, in this moment, Jesus wants them to recognize their total insufficiency and hopelessness apart from him. And to see his stupendously abundant sufficiency and provision if they will lean on him and trust him. So in verse 18, Jesus steps in and takes control of the situation because he doesn't panic when he sees 20,000 sinners and sufferers coming towards him in need. Far from home, in the heat of the midday sun, sat hungry and thirsty, Jesus says, get them to sit down. I'm in control. I'm compassionate. He knows exactly what he needs to do. So he instructs the disciples to bring the ingredients for this fish finger sandwich to him so he can resolve the issues. Barley loaves, John tells us, probably not uh, sardines, but probably like a dried fish relish, perhaps. Uh, and he commands the crowd to sit down. The word sit there literally means recline, as you would do at a banquet for a Jewish festival or feast. So Jesus is, is telling them to recline and to relax and get ready for a banquet that he's about to lay on for them. Then he looks up to heaven. He gives thanks. He breaks bread. He breaks up the fish and he gives it to the disciples to distribute. Now, how does this miracle impact us? Well, perhaps like this. When things seem out of control to us, there is one person who is in control and he is compassionately willing and able to help all who will come to him. So when situations in front of us reveal our inadequacies and our insufficiency and our limited resources and our lack of faith, 
and when things seem hopelessly beyond our control and when we must get to the end of ourselves and say, yes, this, this is hopeless, this is impossible. What can I do? Jesus says, come to me, the one who is in control, the one who is compassionate, the one who has everything that we need to help us. You know, you've probably seen in the newspaper or on the television or in the news reports, this kind of green and yellow sign that sits on the front of the podium during the coronavirus press conferences. Stay alert, control the virus, save lives. And I read that and I think, can we really do that? Is there going to be a second wave? What about all of the things that might happen because of the protests? What about the winter that's coming? What is there going to be a second wave? And I don't know because I'm not in control. I can't control the virus. The coronavirus might mean that we can't control our jobs. We can't control our health. We can't control our dreams. We can't even control our relationships. Things might spiral out of control. The coronavirus probably means that right now, the year that you had planned, the holiday that you had planned, the summer of 2020 that you had planned, this kind of 2020 vision of what the year would be like is in shambles. It's out of our control. And yet Jesus remains in control, abundantly sufficient to help us in our time of need. There is no problem that you or I will ever face that is too big for Jesus to handle. Feeding 20,000 people with five barley loaves and two fish, which is the pack lunch of a young boy, was not too big for Jesus. So will you and I, no matter what we face, when we feel out of control and insufficient and inadequate, will we trust the one who is in control and who is compassionate to help us? And then thirdly, having seen that Jesus is compassionate and in control, we learn from Matthew that Jesus is enough. In verse 20, as the disciples pass out the fish finger sandwiches to the crowd, everyone, all 20,000 men, women and children, they eat and they are satisfied, we're told. Now, Can you imagine, I often wonder about this, can you imagine watching what was happening as you went from group to group, passing out loaf after loaf and fish after fish to thousands of people without knowing how this is happening or where all this is coming from, or is this going to end? Will I have enough for the next group? <laughs> Can you imagine that? I, I mean, I just think, wow, what must have been going through their minds? And can you imagine the sort of the joy and elation at seeing the abundant provision of Jesus as he meets the, the needy and the hungry people that are on this hillside? Can you imagine the joy? Wow, this has been turned into a banquet for 20,000 people. Can you imagine what must have gone through their minds as all 20,000 people eat and are satisfied? And then when you go around with a basket to collect up the leftovers, each disciple has enough for himself, a basket of leftovers. You see, this miracle, I think, was as much for the disciples as it was for the crowd, for it loudly proclaims, as we've seen, Jesus is compassionate, Jesus is in control, and Jesus is enough. The miracle tells us that Jesus is the only one who completely and fully can meet the needs of everyone who comes to him. 
for every soul that is hungry and thirsty to be satisfied. And for all those who've tried to fill their stomach with the things of this world and yet find that they only come up hungry, like a trip to McDonald's that leaves you wanting more. Jesus invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus invites us to see that he alone is able to meet the needs that we have. Jesus wants us to see that he is enough for each and every person who will trust in him. Man, woman, child. He has resources for all who will come to him. For you and for me, he is enough. So we stand here and it would be true to say that it's not hard to be overwhelmed with life and family and work and current situations. And it's not hard to be overwhelmed when we look out at the needs of our neighbours and of our community and our small group and our church, let alone all the things that are going on in the world at the moment. And it's easy to look on and say, oh, that's impossible. When we think about um, whether our marriage will ever change, whether our unsaved children will ever come to faith whether we think uh, our health will never change or that will never happen in my future. We say it's impossible, yet miracle reminds us that Jesus is enough. You know, there is no person in this church or outside of this church that will ever be able to meet all of your needs. There is no government plan that can do everything for us. If all of the nations of the world got together with all of their cumulative wealth and wisdom and power. It couldn't fill every human heart. Jesus, though, is enough. So where will we go? Who will help us? Who will give us all that we need and can meet every need and longing of our heart? Well, Matthew would have us see that Jesus is abundantly more than enough. We might need sleep. We might need a job. We might need a friend. We might need a prescription. True, true, true. All of that is true. We shouldn't discount any of those those things. But what we need more than anything else is Jesus. And he is more than enough for you. Do you know this morning that what you need more than anything else is Jesus? Whether you be a Christian or not a Christian at the moment, what we all need more than anything else is Jesus. And the good news is, he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For he's compassionate, he's in control, and he is enough. And in fact, John's retelling of this exact story in John chapter 6 makes it super clear. In John 6, 35, Jesus says this. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. But all that the father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day.
Jesus is not simply one who provides what satisfies. He himself is the one who satisfies. He's the bread of life. He's the bread of heaven. He didn't come merely to be a glorified baker or a Greg's worker. He came to be the very bread that we need to eat. And if we do, we will experience true and lasting and eternal satisfaction for Jesus is enough. And this is truly a memorable meal and comfort food for our souls. Let's pray.